You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.9, Night Errant, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, or as I would be known in the SD Gundam Gaiden universe, Podcaster Tom. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam, and grateful for the important life lessons I'm learning from it. Life lessons like, as a mage, I'm weak against infantry and should focus my attacks on the enemy's cavalry. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 604 patrons and subscribers. Whew! Back over 600! Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Baru Cafe, Ryan D, Kayed, and Alex. As an independent and ad-free podcast, MSB is entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy this podcast, support us today by recommending us to your friends becoming a subscriber, making a one-time payment, buying us research materials from our website, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. A quick update, there will be no new episode next week. We are taking some time off to be with family. We had hoped to be done with SD Gundam Gaiden before now, but getting sick threw off our timetable. This just helps build suspense for the final Gaiden episode, right? Yeah, sure. Whatever. After this short break, we will be back on our normal release schedule. This week we're covering SD Gundam Gaiden Episode 3, Arugasu Kishidan, or The Order of the Knights of Argus. Episode 3 was released on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1990, seven months after Episode 2. In the interim, the SD Gundam team at Sunrise produced two other collections of shorts, SD Gundam Mark IV, released in September 1990, and SD Gundam Mark V in October the same year. We will return to those after we finish Gaiden Episode 4. Most of the creative team behind Gaiden Episodes 1 and 2 remains on staff for Episode 3, but the art director, Yajima Yoichi, replaced Ikeda Shigemi. Yajima is a frequent background artist for Gundam shows, going back to Zeta, as well as on shows like The Big O, Gasaraki, and Inuyasha. This episode also brings in a bevy of voices, some new and some familiar. Tobita Nobuo reprised his role as Camille, and Sakakibara Yoshiko returned as Haman and the Kubelei but Fa's voice actor, Matsuoko Miyuki, has been replaced by Yajima Akiko, the future Relina in Gundam Wing. It's noteworthy that Matsuoka, Fa's original voice, reprised the role of Fa in the earlier SD shorts. It's not clear why she wasn't cast for this project, but she seems to have either been moving away from voice acting, or perhaps struggling in her career. She has only a handful of roles to her name, and retired in the mid-90s after less than a decade in the profession. 
From First Gundam, the voice of Ryu Jose, Izuka Shozo, played King Blex. The voice of the old man with the coffee beans on the white base, Taki Masaya, played the tutor Wong Lee. Although perhaps more relevant to our recent episodes, he was the yo-yo consultant for Sugeban Deka. The narrator for First Gundam, who also played about a dozen other roles, Nagai Ichiro, played the wise tree spirit. Meanwhile, the voices behind the trio of Argus commanders, Tsujitani Koji as Swordsman Zeta, Yanada Kiyoyuki as Warrior Double Zeta, and Endo Akifumi as Magician New, were all just about to take on roles in the movie Gundam F91, so I'll talk more about them then. Filling out the roster in various cameo roles are the voices of Federation Captain Chan Ya from Zeta, Very Good Boy Ino Abav from Double Zeta, appropriately named Commander Killing from 0080, and dead before we even met him, Andy Strauss, also from 0080. And now, Nina's recap. The Argus and Munzo kingdoms have been at war for years. In the latest skirmish, a Gundam cavalry charge through the forest is caught in the golden glittering spells of the Kubele sorceress, and the evil power of Zeon descends, engulfing them all in a vortex of magical red fire, snatching up the Gundam commander, Sir Alex, and roaring up and across the sky to the castle of the King of Munzo. On his journey to become a great warrior, Amuro walks through a dusty, seemingly abandoned town. The buildings are cracked and crumbling, dark red vines covered in thorns climb up walls and across the empty streets. A yell draws him to just outside the castle, where Yazan terrorizes two peasants, while Princess Yuri yells at him to stop. Amuro defeats Yazan handily, dodging an overzealous attack so that Yazan runs right off the edge of the earthworks and falls into the moat. The peasants run away, and Amuro asks the princess what happened to this place. This is Munzo, fallen to ruin from long rivalry and endless war. But this isn't only the result of battle. Amuro is certain that evil powers are at work. One of her father's ministers, Haman, calls her name. The princess must go, but she begs the kind traveler Amuro to go to the kingdom of Argus to tell Prince Camille that she is all right, but an attack is imminent. Arguing voices greet Amuro on his way. A group of warriors bearing a strong resemblance to the Gundam Knight are blaming each other for their recent defeat. These are the Order of Argus Knights, Fencer Zeta, Wizard Nu, and Warrior Double Zeta, and they take him to meet the King of Argus. Amuro's welcome is interrupted when Munzo troops are spotted outside the city walls, and although the Argus forces repel the attack, it is a clumsy battle. Squads get in the way of their own allies, more interested in personal glory than in cooperation, and an enemy soldier who would have made a valuable prisoner escapes instead. Taking a walk in the woods on his own to think things over, Amuro hears a deep voice and a glowing mono-eye appears out of the shadows. Cautiously, Amuro approaches until he can get a clear view. The voice and the eye belong to a massive figure built entirely of living wood, the forest spirit, Katl. What troubles you, the spirit asks, and after hearing the story, advises Amuro that until the Argus forces are united, they cannot win. 
true power comes from strength, skill, and magic used in concert. Before Amuro can ask him what exactly that means, Katal fades into the forest gloom once more. Back at the castle, all is in uproar. Worried for Princess Yuri of Monzo, Prince Camille has set out on his own. The Gundam warriors argue over which of them should rescue the prince, but the king chooses Amuro to lead them. Even as they prepare for the mission, the Gundam warriors bicker and complain until Amuro can't stand it anymore. He scolds and berates them for their pettiness and says that if they cannot work together, he will go alone. At the walls of Manzo Castle, Amuro confronts a line of spear-wielding Zaku. He uses his shield to vault over them and spots Prince Camille chained just inside the door, guarded by the warrior Drysen. More of Munzo's troops emerge and surround Amuro, leaving him nowhere to run, but then the Gundams arrive, each leading their respective troops. With Amuro to direct them, they work together, each using their unique strengths to best advantage. Soon, they are able to leave the fighting to their lieutenants and go in search of Prince Camille. Around a curve in the stone halls, they are confronted by the Kubele Sorceress, who transforms herself into a great many-headed serpent. Warrior Double Zeta stays behind to fight her while the others go on. The castle is overrun with Argus troops, and first Princess Fa, then Amuro and the Argus Knights try to convince the King of Monzo to surrender. Instead, he declares he has nothing left to lose. Invoking the name of Zeon, he sits in his throne, and it promptly swallows him up. When the princess tries to pull him free, the throne swallows her, too, and then transforms into a massive mobile armor monster, four eyes and two mouths surrounded by long clawed arms and writhing tentacles. It takes all of the Argus Knights working together to free the princess and defeat the monster, trapping it in a magical orb of light, deflecting its own beam attacks back in its face, and hacking at it even though it heals moments later. The orb shines brilliantly, blocking any view of the combatants, and then explodes, leaving nothing behind. But somehow, the Argus Knights survive. The King of Argus thanks Amuro for his valiant service and lends his own troops to Amuro's next mission, returning to Lacroa and defeating Zeon once and for all. You know, I realized while I was writing the recap for this episode that, for once, I can say Gundams and be correct. Yeah. I can refer to the Gundams. There are several. There are. And they uh, wrote themselves into a tricky position here because there is now a second Knight Gundam, but it would be too confusing to call this the Knight Alex Gundam or the Knight Gundam Alex, so they just call it the Knight Alex. Technically, they're all knights because they're all members of the Order of Argus Knights. Well, yes and no, right? <laughs> they're all Kishi, which is basically knight, but only one of them is knight. Well, two of them because Amuro is there, but you know what I mean. Argus is a pegasus from mythology, isn't it? No. No. What is Argus? Argus is a monster from oh. mythology. Also, I mean, it's Greek mythology. A lot of these names get reused. So Argus is a bunch of things. 
But Argus is a monster who was, uh, I believe, a giant covered in eyes set by Hera to watch over one of Zeus's lovers that she had transformed into, uh, I, I think this is the one that she transformed into a cow. I think there is a Pegasus connection, but you have your phone out, so double check that for me. So Bellerophon rode the Pegasus to slay the Chimera. Okay, well, who slew Argus? Was one of those heroes? Argus Panoptes. Argus the All-Seeing, sometimes Argus the Hundred-Eyed, was slain by Hermes. Ew, okay, that still works then. Cool. What I mean when I say that still works. This week we have yet another not very funny SD Gundam episode. I'm going to quibble with you on that, but please finish your thought. I really enjoyed the visual design of many aspects of this episode. Characters, backgrounds, it's mostly in the character design, but uh, it showed a lot of thought and attention to detail that I wouldn't necessarily expect out of these SD Gundam shorts. <laughs> it's a bit harsh, not entirely unfair, but a bit harsh. Your comment about Hermes caught my attention because each of the main Gundam knights represents a class of fighter. There's infantry, there's cavalry, and there's mages. And each of those groups, when they show up towards the end of the episode for the fight at the Munzo castle, there's like a lieutenant and then there's the rank and file troops. And all of them are visually similar but distinct from each other. Every one of the lead knights is wearing two feathers, but in different positions. One of them has the feathers on his chest, one has them on his forehead, like part of the V-fin, and one has them on the sides of the helmet, around sort of ear placement. The lieutenants and the rank and file each wear one feather. <laughs> and then the lieutenants have distinct costumes from the rank and file soldiers, usually just variations in color and maybe a slight detail or two changed. I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm a cape enthusiast. I like to see different variations on capes. And the one the Zeta is wearing is the like over one shoulder and then strapped under the other armpit cape, which just looks really cool. Entirely impractical. Didn't it start out practical though? Wasn't it for fencing and sword fighters so that the sword arm side would be free? I mean, probably. But then you end up with like one warm arm. I mean, why wear the cape at all at that point? For fashion. <laughs> it's called fashion, sweetie. Look it up. No, it's great. Um, I love it. I love capes. I do associate that style of cape with like the Three Musketeers. It's true. I think about the Three Musketeers. I think about stagings of Romeo and Juliet that set it in the Renaissance, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of, we have a Romeo and Juliet storyline with Camille and Fa, which is quite fun. And they give, <laughs> they give Camille <laughs> a costume that is straight out of a lot of depictions of Shakespeare. Yeah, he's got the he's got the like Elizabethan rough. And the poofy pants and, <laughs> <laughs> and poofy sleeves with slashes. One of the lieutenants is wearing a tricorn and manages to look very piratey, which I appreciate. I think that was, hang on. It's the cavalry. Yes. Um, most of the cavalry are Jim Sniper 2s, 
but there are actually two unique cavalry officers besides the Zeta, the Rigazi and the Jim Command. And I don't remember which one that was. Probably Jim Command. Another character whose costume changes over the course of the episode is, of course, Amuro, who has all new armor and a new shield when he's leaving to go rescue Prince Camille. <laughs> uh, the shield is red, white, and blue, I think. Or Yeah, it kind of looks like an American flag. It's covered in stars. It made me think of Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> There's another shield, actually, that stood out to me earlier. We'll come back to Amuro's new costume, but... The shield that I think Knight Alex is using in the beginning opening sequence looks like it's a dead match for the Hylian shield from Zelda in terms of its design, except the Hylian shield in Zelda had not appeared in Zelda yet. There were Zelda games, but the shield designs were very different in those early ones. I guess it's actually possible that Zelda lifted this shield design from SD Gundam. They're not like exactly identical, but they're close enough. And SD Gundam was very popular. But to come back to Amuro's costume change, did you recognize the source of his second set of armor? No. It's the DJ from Zeta. The giveaway is on one shoulder. It has kind of like a little claw-shaped rack kind of thing that the DJ also has. And of course, the color's right. And this is his Zeta adventure, when he goes off on his own and matures into a a new kind of person, a leader now, a mentor to others. And of course, his his costume at the beginning, when he's doing his like wandering training pilgrimage routine, evokes the hooded cloak he wears when he's in the desert after running away in First Gundam. They give Haman some very intense cat-eye glasses, which I couldn't say why they did such a thing, but I dig it. The one human character design choice that felt really odd to me was that the king of Argus, they gave him his regular head and face. Everyone else's SD version has like a cute chibified version of their face. His is just normal character face (laughs) on SD body. Yes, King Blex is a little um, uh, uncanny valley in that way. And all the character designs are getting so detailed and complicated at this point that I'm sure it must be really hard on the animators. They're doing good work, but if those early SDs were like a fun, easy break that could be done by a couple of people in a couple of months, we are past that point now. There are also some really creative adaptations of the mobile suit characters. I especially liked the wizard new and how the funnels look sort of like a cape and sort of like wings. It made me think of a couple of weeks back when we were covering those SD uh, Sengokuden shorts, Mm. and you mentioned the, like, kites that could be used to fly a person. Yeah. Because the the wings on the Magician New look kind of like they could unfold and be bat wings. And then when the Kubele Sorceress turns into a serpent, those bits, those funnels, turn into the heads of this hydra-like monster. You know what it reminded me of? When we were in Cambodia, and there were all those statues of the snake deities that would bring the rain. Mm-hmm. But it was like a big snake body and then a sort of fan-shaped array, array of... <laughs> of snake heads. Yeah. Yeah. The Kubele Naga. Uh 
cattle as a tree. <laughs> um, an inspired choice. So yeah. good. I find that scene very funny because it feels like a scene that could be plopped into just about any like fantasy sword and sorcery adventure. The scene where the hero goes into the woods and meets the wise spirit. And then it even ends with the tree like giving some vague advice and then fading away as the hero yells, wait, but what do I actually need to do? And then the tree, as it's disappearing, gives one last piece of more specific advice. That's the free space in the middle of your fantasy movie bingo card. Unfortunately, the payoff of Cattle's advice is one of the places where I think the story falls apart. Mm -hmm. There are a few places where the narrative feels pretty weak. Uh, but after Cattle has said, ah, oh, you need to harness and unite the power of the dragon, the lion, and the owl, Amuro makes a big deal out of seeing the dragon face shield. Oh, there it is. And they wind up capturing it. But every subsequent thing gets less and less attention. Mm -hmm. And because the show doesn't draw attention to the owl and the lion in the same way, the fact that they are being taken from the enemy and repurposed and used by our heroes is almost lost. Mm -hmm. And they don't feel particularly essential to the resolution of the conflict. I liked this episode a lot. It's towards the top for me when it comes to the SD stuff we have covered so far, but it does fall apart at the end. They did not know how to end it. They were running well, they had some good scenes, some great designs, and then they just didn't... I don't know, they ran out of steam? Maybe they didn't know how to end it? Because it ends like everybody pairs off and has a thematically appropriate duel, as has been the case for every SD Gundam Gaiden so far. They do change it up a little bit. This time they're like, what if we don't have the strong one fight the strong one and the magic one fight the magic one? What if we crisscross? But it's still fundamentally the same thing happening. And then the ending is just like two guys shoot beams at each other until one of them gets tired. And Come then, on. And then briefly you think everyone is dead. But then no, your friends survived. A twist so standard issue that I did not even think it was necessary to mention it. There's a reason I didn't mention it in the recap. I did really like the throne coming alive, swallowing Konskan and uh, Princess Yuri, and then them needing to be like rescued from it. That was nice. I thought that was a good twist. The way the throne swallows them up, the way that's animated. Like a clamshell closing? Oh, not even. Almost or like, a scallop. like someone sinking into something fleshy or being... Mm. Uh, absorbed by it made me think of Akira, made me think ah. of the scenes after Tetsuo becomes the big flesh blob mm -hmm. uh, and is absorbing and crushing certain other characters. Uh, very similar vibes, I thought. Uh, <laughs> similar portrayal of the way in which these characters are swallowed up. And on a thematic level, I like the notion that the problem, the real evil here is not the guy sitting on the throne. It's not that Konskan is like a tyrannical monster personally. The problem is the throne, the institution. That's theory for you. I know not everything is about World War II, but <laughs> Princess Yuri's little speech about like, 
this has gone on too long and it's destroying us and we should surrender so we can rebuild and be glorious again. Just felt like it was about <laughs> the end of World War II. I mean, it could be. It could be about a lot of things, but it could be about that. And the design of that final boss mobile suit was so over the top, but fun for that. It's got arms with claws, and it's got tentacles, and it's got two faces, and four <laughs> eyeballs, and two mouths. I thought and... the bit where they cut off one of its hands, and instead of like growing a new hand the way we often see like a hydra grow a new head, it just sort of has another hand behind it that pushes the first one out. That was very neat. Watching that, I did think, is there a toy of this, and does it have that gimmick? Because you could, mm. that's the thing you could do. With springs or, yeah. yeah. I actually want to level a complaint against that final monster. Not that it wasn't cool, if extremely goofy. But it's supposed to be a mashup of the O and the Byerlant. Now, as dedicated listeners of this program know, the Byerlant is one of my absolute favorite mecha ever. Not just in Zeta Gundam, but total. I love it. I love its little sloth hands. I love its weird wideness. I love its pointy feet. It's really great. Yes. I love its head. <laughs> but I don't see any of it in this stupid final boss monster. Wait a second. Was there no Zacrello in this episode? That's unacceptable. <laughs> well, I have to go through this with a fine-toothed comb to determine whether or not there was a Zacrello. Ugh, no Zacrello, and they ruined the Barrelant. I take it back. I didn't like this episode at all. <laughs> there were two other sort of problems I had with the narrative on this one. One of them, as our heroes are running through the halls to get to the King of Monzo, they run into three enemies who sing in harmony, you shall not pass, <laughs> or something along those lines. Uh-huh. And then nothing happens with those enemies hmm. there's no battle shown with them i don't even know if anybody stays behind to fight them they're shown mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. we move on like what was the point of that scene good question yeah i hadn't thought about that hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so those three are although they don't look much like it um those are gezes which was the sort of cobbled together junkyard mobile suit that Gemon Bajak and Yazan used to menace the Shangri-La teens in the early part of Double Zeta. But there are three of them, and I'm wondering if that might be a kind of reference to the Double Zeta novelization? <laughs> I don't know a ton about the Double Zeta novelization, but I think one of the differences is that in that one, it ends up being Gemon, Yazan, and Mashima all uh. using Gezes, and that they use them for uh, quite a significant portion of the events of Double Zeta. As we are talking about this scene, I'm imagining it could be very funny to have these three mobile suits be like, you shall not pass, you shall not pass, you shall not pass, and then just have our heroes run directly <laughs> past them. But they don't actually show that, and mm -hmm, so it's mm -hmm. not funny. It's just this weird hanging thread. Mm. And I could imagine that it was intended to be that, to be like funny because of what a letdown it is. And then the final bit, 
I love a good evil vine, and uh, Munzo is Munzo slowly is crawling with evil vines, being encroached upon by these dark reddish, very spiky, yeah, covered in thorns vines, which for me brings to mind Sleeping Beauty, mm. the Disney version. See, for me, it brings to mind Elden Ring, <laughs> which also has a castle overgrown in creepy dark red spiny vines. But for all that I like it as a visual element, I sort of wish they had done more with it. Mm. This is giving the show perhaps more credit than it deserves because this is not made clear in any way, but the vines may be part of what tips Amaro off that, oh, this isn't just that this country has been at war for a long time. There is some deep evil at work here. Mm -hmm. But he never states that explicitly. It's not made visually clear. Like, they don't focus in on the vines when he's like, no, there is deeper evil here. And What was that term Tatiana taught us back during season four, the Kornishov effect? Like, if they'd shown us Amaro looking concerned and then shown us the vine and then right. back to Amaro. I don't remember the name of it, but yes, it has to do with the way in which you cut, like, a person's face and then some other thing and that our our minds interpret that as, oh, they're looking at the thing, and then we attribute to them whatever emotions we think are appropriate to someone looking at whatever they're looking at. I think it's the Cornishov effect, but I might just be thinking about Cornichons. <laughs> Why are you thinking about Cornichons? I'm hungry, okay? It's almost lunchtime. It is lunchtime. Okay, I checked, and it's the Kulishov effect. I said I was going to quibble with you about the humor, and I do want to highlight a couple of points where I think they do some very good humor. One of them is actually right around what we were just talking about because when Amuro is fighting Yazan and Yazan like charges him and Amuro jumps over him and Yazan goes flying across the moat, sticks in the wall on the other side, then does a whole like Looney Tunes trying to swim in the air and then the pause between when he falls off of screen and when he splashes and the way that Amro and Princess Fa completely ignore him after he falls, even though the splash overlaps with some of their conversation, is perfectly timed. Good humor. They do a similar joke at the end, which doesn't quite land, which is ironic because it is the visual gag where the Zeta like calmly rides his horse, which can fly, down to the ground and then the new like glides down and then the double Zeta just face plants a moment later. Big, strong, tough warrior guy. Don't need no flying horse. It doesn't quite nail it, but it still works. I suppose. There were certainly moments in some of the fight scenes that were quite good. They did a great job of conveying just how bad all of these different uh, Gundam groups are at working together. In that first fight outside of the Argus Kingdom, they're constantly getting in each other's way. And then later they resolve some of that. Uh, though my favorite fight moment is actually when Amuro rolls up by himself, uses his shield to like clamber over the line of spearmen and then has it on some kind of a retractable <laughs> string or rope so he can pull it back to himself afterwards. That was good. I liked when they're infiltrating the castle, they run into the cubelet and she shoots like a cloud of magic at them. And then the warriors use their shields to like form a wedge and spread 
the magic effect out. I like seeing that kind of physical interaction with the magical energy. I also just like this scene because I think the design of the medieval Rick Diaz is one of the best. <laughs> and I like when they give it things to do. Do you know why they gave the Zeta the unicorn horn? I have no idea. Because when the Zeta transforms, one of the things that happens is its V-fin comes together to form a single point. Oh. Indeed. The original Unicorn Gundam. I think you mean the only Unicorn Gundam? Tom, I'm pretty sure we've told the listeners before that I did see the first part of Unicorn. <laughs> Long ago, long before we conceived of this project. What is the first part of the unicorn? Is it the horn? Is it the haunch? The snoot. Obviously, <laughs> it's the snoot. I liked the setup of this episode, too. I liked the sort of construction of Amaro going on this warrior pilgrimage and visiting far-flung lands and learning about this strange world that he inhabits. And I really like the world-building bit of having, like, a clan of Gundams. There's Gundam, the legendary hero, but there's also just like a bunch of Gundams. They're people who live over in that country over there. And many of them are great warriors, but they're not all legendary heroes in the same way. They are the Gundam clan. That connects with the part of the ending that I enjoyed a lot, actually. You were saying you didn't like the ending, but the little speech at the end that the king of Argus makes to Amuro about, you know, thank you for helping our kingdom. And now in gratitude to you, you can take a bunch of our troops and go defeat Zeon forever. Mm -hmm. And uh, having this part of the story then actually have a meaningful impact on the final episode is really cool. Yeah, this yeah. doesn't become sort of a standalone, well, we needed to fill out time, so here's an episode that doesn't affect or connect with anything. In fact, this is an important part of the setup for episode four. And we can see how, you know, this probably took place at the same time as the Legendary Giant episode that we covered on the last episode. So, you know, we see the group split up and they both go and do their different things. They meet new allies, they make new friends, and they go to different places, and they both get a glimpse of this greater threat. It's well constructed. Good job. I want to finish on two visual notes that I can't let pass. <laughs> the first one is that in the show originally, the Double Zeta has a big, like, two-barreled beam cannon. Very powerful. He only uses it once in this episode, but Warrior Double Zeta has that same kind of device, but instead of a gun, it's uh, got the heads of two maces on it, and they like shoot out. <laughs> Short ranged, right? But like a bludgeon or a battering ram. And he, I think he uses it on the cubelet. Finally though, when Knight Alex is captured and they put him in the prison under Munzo Castle, he's wearing this like, stone coffin thing designed to keep him from escaping and it's got sort of magic runes on it presumably designed to seal his spiritual strength but it's definitely the chabam armor from oh, 0080 right that makes sense when i saw it my immediate reaction was oh hey that's the chabam armor from 0080 neat 
which I assume is exactly the reaction they wanted me to have. Yeah, I'm clearly not enough of a Gundam fan yet because my reaction was, oh, is that a suit they've trapped him in? Like a straight jacket or an Iron Maiden kind of deal? Or is it, um, gosh, the only reference I can think of for this is Mononoke, the medicine seller anime. But uh, I believe they're a reference to a Shinto item, a piece of paper with sort of a ward or protective something written on it that's used to seal things. Stay tuned for more about that <laughs> in the research. Coming up right now. And now Tom's research on the Alex containment unit. When Knight Alex, battlefield commander of the Argus forces, falls prey to the sorceress powers of Lord Zigjion and or the Cubile, his Munzo Empire captors imprison him within a stone suit. His Cardass information card refers to this as Iwa no Fuin, a stone seal. It is, as I mentioned in the talkback, based on the Alex's Chabam armor from 0080, and being a Vaguely person-shaped imprisonment coffin, it somewhat resembles an Iron Maiden, as Nina mentioned. Although that infamous torture device was almost certainly invented in the gory imaginations of 18th century writers trying to play up the so-called barbarism of the Middle Ages, and never actually existed. Since the stone armor's main function is to prevent the Alex moving, perhaps a better comparison would be the box supposedly used by the Carthaginians to imprison Roman general Marcus Attilius Regulus after his defeat during the First Punic War in 256 BCE. His captors permitted him to return to Rome to negotiate a peace treaty with the city's senate, on condition that he return to captivity thereafter. However, when Regulus addressed the senate, he urged them to refuse any offers of peace and to keep fighting until they utterly vanquished the exhausted Carthaginians. It was a bit like General Revel suddenly appearing at the Antarctic Conference to tell the Federation brass to reject Zeon's peace deal. What makes Regulus famous, however, was that after essentially double-crossing the Carthaginians, he still honored his oath and placed himself back in their custody. Accounts diverge about what they did to him, but the most sensational one says they locked him into a box with nails on every side. None of the nails were actually touching him, but only so long as he stayed standing rigidly upright. Eventually, well, it seems like a bad way to go. Like the Iron Maiden, this story dates from like 400 years after his death, so take it with a scrupulum of salt. Translator's note, a scrupulum is a Roman unit of volume slightly greater than one gram. The Iron Maiden and the Carthaginian box might be fake, but locking someone inside a close-fitting, highly personal prison was a real punishment during the late Middle Ages and into the modern period. It's just that the only nails poking into the imprisoned person were the intangible nails of shame. With names like the Drunkard's Barrel, the Newcastle Cloak, or the Spanish Coat, these devices were modified barrels, with a hole in the top for your head and, if you were lucky, a hole in the bottom for your legs. It was a kind of mobile pillory, and once locked in, you would be subjected to public humiliation and not inconsiderable discomfort and inconvenience until released. 
In East and Southeast Asia, the kang served a similar function. The kang was a wide, heavy board which would be sealed around the neck of a victim and onto which an authority might write the justification for this torture. The size and weight of the kang were considerable, enough to make movement difficult and feeding oneself nigh impossible. More pertinently, the kang could be combined with an elevated cage such that the victim had to stand perfectly still and upright or else be strangled by the board around their neck. But that's all very gruesome, so let's focus instead on the markings on the Chobham armor. The surface of the stone is decorated with glowing markings, curves and circles evocative of supernatural eyes, along with other abstract geometric shapes. The implication is that the sigils on the armor are suppressing Knight Alex's spiritual power. If you have watched, really, any amount of anime, then you have probably seen a character use talismans, often strips of paper, to seal someone or something's spiritual power. To give a few high-profile examples, they're in Sailor Moon, Naruto, Yu Yu Hakusho, and of course they feature prominently in the 2007 supernatural horror masterpiece Mononoke. These are Ofuda, or Shinsatsu, consecrated talismans that can be used to invoke the power of a particular deity to, among other things, seal away an evil spirit, purify the unclean, ward away disease and other kinds of misfortune, or unleash a divine firestorm. Whatever you need. Although, fair warning, I think that last one only works if you are an anime character. Ofuda are a real part of religious practice in Japan. You can get them easily in shrines, and you'll see them used in all kinds of places for all kinds of reasons. One of the most popular ones I remember when I was living in Japan was talismans against fire to put in your kitchen. Yeah. I know talismans against thieves are very popular in shops. Some of these talismans are associated with Buddhism and others with Shinto. The practice is many centuries old and was derived, at least in part, from the similar use of paper talismans in some strains of Taoist mysticism. These Taoist talismans, or fu, are written in a unique script that combines recognizable Chinese characters, although usually somewhat modified, with mystic symbols, astrological diagrams, and a secret script passed down from master to disciple within the practitioner's sect. All are then stamped with a special seal. The power of the seal vis-a-vis -vis the fu was considerable, and in some cases, the talisman itself could be dispensed with and the seal alone used for the same purpose. One remedy for illness involved coating a seal in medicine, stamping it onto a piece of paper, burning the paper, mixing the ashes with liquid, and then serving them to a patient to drink. But all of this constitutes only the tangible part of the fu. When making fu, a daoshi performs complex spiritual rituals and communicates directly with powerful gods in order to imbue the talisman with the power to reach and affect the invisible, intangible world as well. So the glowing marks on the Alex's stone armor act like the writing on one of those talismans, granting it the power to seal away the knight's spirit. Presumably, mere mundane stone would be no match for him if he were not thus sealed. For a comparable example from classic literature, the 14th century Chinese novel The Water Margin opens with a host of powerful demons being accidentally freed from their imprisonment under a stone inscribed with mystic symbols. 
But while they function like a mystic talisman, the appearance of the SD Alex in its stone armor calls to mind a different origin entirely, one that goes back to Japan's prehistoric Jomon period. The Jomon period lasted from around 14,000 to 300 BCE, when Japan was populated by widespread and culturally heterogeneous communities of hunter-gatherers. Credible evidence dates initial human settlement in Japan to at least 130,000 years ago, and there's evidence of stone tool use going back around 32,000 years. At the time, the Earth was in the midst of a glaciation period, and sea levels were much lower than they are now. Rather than an archipelago in the middle of the ocean, what is today Japan was an arc-shaped mountain range on the outward edge of an inland sea, accessible by land bridges in the north and the south. By the start of the Jomon period, though, the sea levels were rising and the lowlands were getting swallowed up. As the available land shrank, human populations intensified their hunting, which, combined with the climatic changes, drove many of the large mammals in the region extinct. Increasingly, people were forced to rely on other sources of food, like acorns, which were seasonally plentiful but needed to be stored up to last through the lean months. This required a new technology, pottery. It is the introduction of pottery, then, that marks the start of the Jomon period. Jomon pottery has a distinctive decorative style, which is created by pressing straw ropes into the clay in elaborate corded designs, and the name Jomon actually means straw rope design. These designs grew increasingly elaborate and sophisticated over time, which makes sense because collectively they had more than 10,000 years to work on it. You might remember that last week Nina talked about how Countless cultures all over the world have made little dudes out of clay, and the Jomon people were no different. Alongside utilitarian clay vessels, archaeologists have found something like 15,000 little clay figures from the Jomon era. Called dogu, they ranged in size from about 10 to 30 centimeters, which is roughly the same size range as gunpla. Their purpose remains mysterious. But dogu were often female, and given exaggerated sexual characteristics, leading many scholars to suspect that they were associated with ancient mother goddesses, and may have served perhaps as charms for fertility or against the dangers of childbirth. That sounds plausible, and I don't want to cast doubt on these expert archaeologists, but at the same time, it is very funny to me to imagine future archaeologists digging up a collection of anime waifu figurines with let's say, exaggerated sexual characteristics, and assuming that these, too, must surely have been fertility charms or protective amulets. But I digress. Another theory posits that dogu represented specific people, and that they could be used in healing practices, where a disease or wound would be ritually transferred from the person into the simulacrum. Like Jomon Potts, Dogu were elaborately decorated with swirling geometric marks and patterns that modern scholars speculate may represent decorative or ritual tattoos, scarification, or both. Archaeological evidence does suggest that Jomon culture gleefully embraced this kind of body modification, including piercings and what a Japan Times article somewhat euphemistically described as dental transfiguration. I will leave you to imagine what that means.
There is also some evidence in the historical record. The oldest surviving written descriptions of Japan's inhabitants can be found in dynastic histories from China, although these still post-date the end of the Jomon period by several centuries. Although these histories are mostly concerned with Chinese political affairs, some do record diplomatic encounters with the so-called barbarians living beyond their borders. And in those reports, we can find claims that the people of what they called Wa, men and women alike, tattooed their bodies and their faces. It is plausible that these tattoos served the same function as the talismans that I talked about earlier. Ritual markings, imbued with spiritual power, in order to ward off misfortune. One of those Chinese sources from the 3rd century even specifically notes fishermen who believed that their tattoos would drive away sharks and other dangerous sea creatures. Although in the case of SD Gundam Gaiden and Knight Alex, the dangerous creature is within. The most recognizable style of dogu is what's called shakoki dogu, a term that refers to the striking design of their eyes. I'm not going to say too much about them right now, because I suspect that I will be talking about them again in, oh, a year or so. Suffice it to say that this style of dogu is so famous that the toy and model maker Good Smile Company is currently planning to release an intricately detailed, highly accurate, and somewhat poseable Figma brand model based on one of the better preserved specimens. It is a pricey figure. If you want one, it will set you back about 110 US dollars. But you know what? I think it's pretty cool that the long, proud history of humans using their society's most advanced materials and techniques to make just tons of little dudes has gone on so long that we now have a state-of-the-art modern plastic recreation of a figure originally created by a master sculptor millennia ago. You could put it on a shelf next to your gunpla as a constant reminder that no matter how much has changed, we as a species just love to make tiny versions of things. That's humanity right there. Next time on episode 6.10, Gundam Must Die, we research and discuss the final episode of SD Gundam Gaiden, episode 4, and I'm Baby. Baby Demon. Oh ho 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 ho! Perish! A Round Table. Only Gundams beyond this point. Thunderbolts and Lightning. Very, very frightening. It was an isekai all along! The classic final act of a video game. Cosmic horror loses a lot of its power when you realize the monster is just some big dude with spikes and a non-standard amount of teeth. The bigger bad. With our powers combined! I'll save you the suspense. The Jim family makes it through okay. Oh, thank God. And all shall be revealed. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people. 
and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. Oh hey, there's no wrong Gundam opinion this week. Instead, anyone who bothers to listen through the credits gets this bonus tidbit I discovered while I was trying to think of a wrong Gundam opinion. Did you know that in 1986, the Japanese video game company Tecmo made a game which was called Rygar in the English, but Arugosu no Senshi, or Warrior of Argus in Japanese. And in this game, a character known only as the Legendary Warrior saves the land of Argus from a great evil while using a weapon that is basically a shield on a chain, like the one Amuro uses in this episode. Seems kind of relevant. The wrong kind of opinion was going to be that this episode was based on that game, but the more I look into it, the more More I think that might actually be true. Yajima is a frequent gun. There was some like snarling in there. Yeah. There was some that wasn't just barking. There were some very angry <laughs> dogs. You might have to go back a sentence yeah, or yeah. two. I, I don't want to step on your toes. Um. And now I'm done. Talking about little figurines made me look at um, what I was thinking about, like, what were some of my favorite, favorite series recently? And unfortunately, there is a really cute collection of characters from eccentric family in their um, shapeshifter forms oh no you're in danger and one of them can hold up your phone and one can hold a pen for you and how much do they cost i think they're mostly out of stock everywhere mm. yeah everywhere i'm looking they're not available they are out of stock everywhere so yeah those those figurines tend to be limited run, right? I think they might have even been like a capsule toy. Mm. Ready? <coughs> <laughs> sure. Ready. Ham <coughs> ham. What a thing to say to me. <laughs> Shall we create podcast problems on purpose? Yes. Problems for ourselves, like having a bunch of audio we need to edit, which is, in a way, also the solution to our problem of not having a podcast yet. Ha. Ha. It made me think of, um, did you mention the, like, human flying kites on the podcast? You did. Yes. Yes. This is an isekai! <laughs> this is a mo- 
This is a Memorphica! So much sparkle. <laughs> so much kira kira.